the book of Ruth, sweet little book, uh, but uh, more than just a love story, it's a land story, and it's a, uh, it's a prophetic story. And I mentioned last week that um, the book of Ruth at different times has been uh, connected with and attached to the, the prophetic books. And um, this is an advertisement for next week because we're going to kind of get into that a little bit more and some fun stuff. And I've been telling you about it, so I'm hoping I've got at least got your curiosity. So next week if you come and it's boring, I'm sorry, but it, it excites me. And, you know, um, our God, I was talking with Arnold beforehand, and he was talking about going out hunting, and he likes to go out and hunt, but as I've talked with him, mostly he just looks and just watching the animals of God's creation and just seeing the creativity of our God. The same God who created all that also put these little cookies in the Bible and in the book of Ruth. So we're going we're gonna, to uh, do that. Or, or if you don't like cookies, you can just think of it like icing on a cake. I know some people <laughs> buy, the, they buy the thing and just eat the icing and never eat the cake. So we're going to do that. But as we get started tonight... Uh, I, I need to, and I always need to, open in prayer. So let's do that as we get started. Our great and heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for bringing us in here safely and, and uh, allowing us to sit down in quiet and open up your word and then let you teach us. And we want that, Lord. Um, I want to get out of the way. I only want to just be a glove that you wear and a vessel that you fill and pour out. And Lord, I thank you for this incredible story about real people who lived at a, a real time at desperate times and you did something marvelous and you do that often. And Lord, we've been beneficiaries of that because you've done it in our lives as well. So as we uh, open up and and look at chapter four tonight. Will you anoint our study, anoint me as I speak, glorify yourself in all of that. And again, I pray that we would go out of here just in awe of you and your word. Thank you for being with us. Just lead us now in your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, well, tonight we're mostly gonna finish chapter four. But I got to leave something for next week uh, beside the cookies. So we'll actually technically finish the book of Ruth next week. But we're mostly going to get it because this is the kind of the exciting part of the story. Last week we, we read and there was uh, a proposal from Ruth to Boaz. Uh, I want you to spread your skirt over me. And we talked about the hemline and how that was something that was uh, a marker of of uh, role and responsibility and a lot of times uh, dignity in society. And, um, and it had to do with, with authority. And Ruth was asking Boaz, will you, will you take me as your bride? Will you put your cover over me? And a picture of that is kind of like what Jesus said to Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to bring you underneath my wings like a hen cares for her chicks. And, and I'm pretty convinced that Jesus was not part chicken, but... He uses that as an illustration. And last week I kind of introduced the idea that God uses various types of language to communicate things. And I was talking with Gary Morrow before tonight and he took me up on something and ran across a, a word in um, Genesis and chapter four where um, 
verse 7, where God tells Cain, there's a choice in front of you, and you can, you can choose to do right, and if you do, your countenance will be lifted. If not, and most versions read, sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. And he found out that there's a word that also can be translated offering. So crouching and offering, and it does make sense, you know, we're crouching to offer ourselves or offer a, a sacrifice to God or offer worship. And so here's a time where something that I mentioned a couple weeks ago where a word might have multiple meanings in the same place. And you're going to find that as you uh, study around. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not ashamed to say this anymore. I used to say, you know, if you could get a hold of Gesenius or, or a interlinear uh, and hardly anybody knew what that was. And, but now you can get it on your phone. <laughs> and uh, uh, Blue Letter Bible is a great tool that you can use. There are several others. Um, that you can look up words, and you don't have to study Hebrew necessarily because you can you can find out what these words say. It does help if you know a little Hebrew, but um, it's all backwards to me. Um, anyway, to, so tonight we're going to try to finish most of chapter four, and you know as we think about the content uh, we've covered so far, um, I, I just want to express uh, thanks to y'all because. I believe, you know, some people have asked in the past, and I heard somebody else say this one time, you know, well, you, you must take the Bible literally. And I remember Adrian Rogers saying, well, I take it literally where it's meant to be literal. But sometimes it's figurative and sometimes it's a typology. And, uh, but we want to take the Word of God seriously and understand what it says. Um, Dr. Rogers used to say that the Bible doesn't say what it means and mean what it says. That's Popeye. Um, the Bible says what it says, and it means what it means. And then it's our job and our joy to open up the Word of God that so many people have given their life to make it possible for us to have a copy in our lap and discover the, the God that welcomes our, our fellowship. So I'm thankful that you're here. And... I gave you an assignment last week, but it's kind of like a long-term assignment. I have found that when I share things, I remember them better. And so part of your assignment is to find a listening ear and just kind of go through some of the things that maybe you've learned in here with somebody to pass that on. Uh, I think you'll remember it better. You'll have a greater appreciation for it as you kind of try to uh, remember some of the different uh, little nuggets and cookies that we've, we've talked about in here. And I think what we want to do is more than anything, we want to sp spread kind of a curiosity and a wonder about the Word of God because I think God has far more for us than that we get in, in just a casual devotional reading of His Word. So just a review. Uh, do we have anybody new tonight? Or is this... Okay, we have, we have one. So we're, you get special treatment tonight. <laughs> um, I gave you an outline the very first week that uh, chapter one of Ruth was the introduction, a love story, and, um, and it involved Ruth and Naomi as the primary characters moving into chapter two, um, where we were introduced to the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. And so that chapter is mostly about Ruth and Boaz. Chapter three is uh, about uh, Naomi giving instructions to Ruth and then Ruth interacting with Boaz and then Boaz sending back a, a message to the future mother-in-law by sending six measures of grain. And 
We don't know how big that was. We know it had to be uh, small enough for her to be able to carry it back. Uh, I read a couple commentaries where it would take about four of us to carry what he gave and, and she left by herself. So I don't think it was that much, but it was a good amount. And it was more than just the what he sent or the amount that he sent. It was the message that it, that it relayed to her that six measures and then the follow-up is, I will not rest until this is done. And so it was a message to her, he's gonna get on this right away, he's gonna make it happen one way or the other, it's gonna to happen tomorrow. And then chapter four is where we are tonight. And so my outline was, um, uh, if you just wanna write these down, uh, this is Warren Wiersbe's outline, not mine. Um, chapter one, sorrow and Ruth's weeping. Um, and it's had to do with her losing a father-in-law, losing a brother-in-law, losing a husband, and then, and then weeping, pleading with Naomi to please take her back with, with her, and then uh, surrendering her life in a, in a pledge that I'm going to go where you go, I'm going to stay where you stay, I'm going to be with your people, your God will be my God, and may God do to me worse if I depart from you, if anything except death causes us to depart from one another. Chapter 2 is service, Ruth working. And this is one of the ways that I think she proved herself noble among the community because she didn't just ask for handouts and she didn't uh, go, as we learned last week, go seek out a, a younger man who would put his skirt over her. He, she worked and then she appealed to a, a man who was a, an older gentleman. And um, I think both of them were, were thrilled with the results. Chapter three last week was submission and that was Ruth waiting. And so she submitted herself to Naomi. She followed her plan. She did everything that her mother-in-law told her to do. And then she had to wait. And, and actually, Ruth is kind of a silent partner until we get to the end of chapter four. And so chapter four is satisfaction. That's Ruth's wedding. So we have Ruth weeping in chapter one, Ruth working in chapter two, uh, Ruth waiting in chapter three, and Ruth, Ruth's wedding in chapter four. And um, I heard somebody say the other day that if it alliterates and then we know it has to come from God um, because that's what they teach us in seminary. All right, okay, we, so we have a flow in this storyline that fits well into a very small drama. And uh, I think uh, the book of Esther, some people have done book uh, movies about that. And you know the, the chapters are great uh, breaks in the scene and plots. And Ruth could almost be that way too. Um, and I think not only can we read about this sweet story, but we can maybe see some parallels in our own life. Uh, and if not here necessarily in other parts of scripture, you know, every drama uh, to make it good has to present some kind of a problem that must be overcome. And um, in our lives, and maybe this is the parallel similar to Ruth, you know, we have something, uh, something troubles in our life and it requires a choice from us. And we may have, one, have to choose one of three paths. We can escape, we can run away, uh, we can endure. Uh, you know, one of the themes that, of that is kind of a modern day statement, it is what it is, with a huh, sigh behind it. And then the third thing is that we can embrace it. We can believe that God is active in our lives and that he's moving. And, you know, I think when, when Ruth and Naomi leave uh, uh, 
Moab to come back to Bethlehem, they're not believing this. They're not embracing that God is in control and that he's got a plan. But I think we're going to see a turnaround in Naomi's heart. We kind of saw the beginning of it in chapter 3. But to embrace it means that we're going to see that God is not causing this, but that God is in it with me. I'm not alone in this. He's going through this with me. And then ultimately see the eternal purposes of it. I mentioned last week about Malachi 3.16 and 17, how God is listening to the conversations that we have about Him. And I think smiling, and it's being recorded, and then ultimately it will be, I think, revealed. Um, Revelation 20 talks about some books that are open, and then later a book of life that's open. And these books, everyone is judged according to the, what's written in the books. So um, I, I believe because of that, there's no separation between the secular and the sacred. I believe that everything that we do falls in one category, and that is, uh, does it fit into God's books that he's recording? So um, we can make meaning out of everything that we go through. Um, the other day I, I was walking in the sanctuary and I heard, heard Jamie. And when I heard the name, I turned because that's my name. But they weren't calling me. We have a, a young lady who's on our staff. Her name is Jamie Otto. And the um, reason I'm bringing this up is because I believe that in the same way, when you hear your name, some of you have a little bit more common names than Jamie, in that a whole lot more people like that name when you were born, and a whole lot of people got named that name when you were born, about the time you were born. You, you hear that name, you turn. And I just believe that our great God is the same way. When we call upon his name, he, he turns to us. He bends down to us. He listens. And in the same way, um, I believe that uh, when people curse his name, he listens. You know, either way, you can get somebody's attention. Uh, and the Lord says that he'll not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. And let me, let me make a, just a, a little side comment. We talked about how words can mean multiple things in the same place. You know, we think of taking the Lord's name in vain. I don't know about y'all, but for many years, I just call it, thought about that as like, a cursing thing. But you know, I think that uh, it is possible to take the Lord's name in vain without cursing because as a believer, as a Christian, that, that name is attached to us. And when we're unfaithful to the task that God has given us, it might be a very specific thing. I think one thing, being light in the world that we're in. Uh, I think I've taken God's name in vain by saying no to the Holy Spirit when he prompted me to talk with somebody about him because I was not faithful in that, in carrying his name to that person. The Bible says that when we praise his name, he pays attention. God occupies the praises of his people, Psalm 22. So all our thoughts, all our conversations are recorded. There's a reward that's looking that we can anticipate, and there's also a rebuke that we can anticipate. And you know, I, I love to laugh, but I've caught myself not laughing as many things, enjoying the things that are really funny a lot more, and then not laughing at things that are kind of on the edge, coarse jesting or things like that. You know, Cindy and I were talking about this, and um, uh, Brother Steve mentioned this about a year ago. We finished our, um, we finished our uh, cable 
contract. And um, so we cut the cables. And Brother Steve talked about that, that he and Donald did it recently. Um, I don't think he did it because of me, okay? But, um, <laughs> but what it's done is given us time to talk about the Lord. And, and, and we intentionally don't study the same thing in Scripture. Um, she asked me, what do you, you know, what's God teaching you? What do you study? And I talked to her about that. She shares with me. And so we kind of get, we kind of get double benefit of that. So I want, just want to encourage you, think about the Lord, talk about him, talk about him to others, talk about Ruth to other people, get them excited about the word of God. You know, you can put it in your notes, Proverbs 18, 10, the name of the Lord is a mighty tower and the righteous runs into it and it is safe. And the other day, Cindy and I were talking about, it. she asked one of the women that she's counseling, what is your, what's your favorite name of God? And I don't remember what she said, but God reveals himself in so many different ways. And, and I think we can not have to pick one that we have to carry the rest of our life. And that's the only one I can have, but God reveals himself in these ways and we can find out more who he is and what he's trying to accomplish in our world and through us as we understand these names. So I want you to think of that name, that the name of the Lord is a mighty tower, mighty strong tower. It's a place of refuge. It's a place that we can go and be protected and, and, and uh, refreshed. All right. Last week, I spent a lot of time talking about the Kinsman Redeemer, the Goel, G-O-E-L, and, um, and mentioned about how there's two aspects of that. One has to do with the Leverite marriage, which we're going to see the final tally of that in chapter four here. But then the other part was the blood avenger. And I'm just fascinated by the types of that represent who Jesus is. Uh, do you remember the, maybe you've heard a message or several messages. Um, it's a common thing. Pastors will preach a message on the seven I am's that Jesus has. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door. I'm the, I, I'm the good shepherd. And, and each one of those reveals something about uh, his character. Well, um, we talked about how last week in, um, in John chapter 5 and 39, uh, he said that you search the scriptures because in these you think you're going to have eternal life, but these are what speak about me. And then I kind of link that hopefully in your notes and in your mind to Psalm 40 and verse 7 where he says that, Behold, I come and the, the sum total of the scroll is written of me. So I believe that we can find Jesus somewhere on every page of the Bible. And uh, I think we can find him in this story as well. Blood Avenger had to do with a city of refuge and and Paul tells us that Jesus is our refuge. Tells us a, a city of refuge was a place where someone who was guilty of murder could run and hide and get, get asylum until it was decided whether this was murder or, or manslaughter, second-degree murder. And in that, um, if it was murder, they'd bring him out and, and let the goel uh, avenge the blood of the deceased relative. And if it was manslaughter, then what would happen was they, no, they would, they would harbor them there. They were able, allowed to stay in the city and they could stay in there and be protected in the city if it was, if it was manslaughter, which is, um, uh, uh, what's the legal word? Um, yeah, not, not premeditated. It wasn't premeditated. It was, it was involuntary. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. And um, I said that word last week, I think, but I, I forgot it this week. <laughs> um, so uh, involuntary manslaughter would be secondary murder. It's, it's, uh, it's where someone was killed, but I didn't do it on purpose and I didn't plan it. And, um, 
And Jesus moved us from first-degree murder when he said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so he released us from the Goel. And then uh, there's one little, little caveat rule about all this, and that is that the, 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 uh, the one who was accused had to stay within the walls of that city until the high priest in Jerusalem died. And Jesus is our high priest who's died to release us from that captivity. So that's just, I spent a lot of time on that last week. We're, I just wanted to touch on it tonight. Okay, next, Hosea 12.10. This is one that I touched on last week as well. Uh, Hosea, through, uh, God through Hosea the prophet says, I have also spoken to the prophets and I have numerous visions and through the prophets I gave parables. And Gary, this is one of those words that can be translated a lot of different ways. We know what parables are. They're a story that has meaning, but it has also has kind of a double meaning. Uh, we think of like Aesop's fables or something like that. There's, there's a meaning in the story, but there's also a, a, some kind of a, a lesson in it as well. Well, God used this word in Hosea 12 to describe these two, over 200 different um, types of language that he uses to communicate to us. Uh, King James uses the word similitudes, and it's uh, similitudes rather, and it's a, uh, like a, a similarity or a type, and, um, and there are over 200 in the Bible. So uh, I think one, one of the things God is saying to us in that is I've, I've tried to communicate with you every way I can. I've exhausted all the possibilities of getting a message to you. Please pay attention. <laughs> and Hosea 12.10 tells us that that's part of what God's purpose. All right. We're doing good on time. All right, Ruth chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, open up to Ruth 4. And we're going to just kind of walk through this. And, um, and then I'm just going to kind of make some comments along the way. Now, um, starts off chapter 4 and verse 1. You all remember, uh, actually, let's go back to uh, verse 17 of chapter 3. It says, she said, this is Naomi, these six measures of Marley, barley, I'm, I'm sorry, Ruth. He, she said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So he was thinking about her, but thinking more than just providing for her. He wanted to send her a message. And then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. And we find out in verse 15, here's why she came to that conclusion was because of these six measures of barley, however much that was. So when we get to chapter three, we're at a new day. Uh, verse one, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And I think I might've mentioned either last week or a couple weeks ago that the gate was where a lot of the city's business took place place. So most of the counties in the United States have a county seat, and that's where the business takes place. There's law matters taken care of. Um, before we bought property in Fayette County, we went out to, to the Somerville Courthouse, and we went and looked back all the way to 1831, where they had the first deeds in Fayette County that went out. And Cindy found a relative that bought 100 acres for, how much was dollars $800. So that was a pretty good deal. <laughs> um, but this is where business transactions would take. This was kind of like the, uh, the gatekeepers because they would either let people in or let people out based upon what they were going to be doing. Um, you know, now we have uh, 
T, uh, TSA and they check your visa and where you're going and your plane ticket. All right, so they, they, they went out and sat down at the gate and uh, the elders of the cities of the city would um, think of this kind of like the city hall. And um, this is where tribal transactions would take place. This, you know, if, if uh, something dangerous was coming, they'd close the gates um, and hole up in the city. Uh, people who lived on the outskirts of the city would come and do business there. Um, but uh, the people would recognize the men who had, had position in the community as they would sit out there and then they would judge issues that, uh, that came up uh, among the community. And Boaz was obviously a very wealthy landowner. We covered that the first week, but he also has a seat at the gate. So we know that he's an influential man and and uh, there were at least one uh, uh, one that implied this, one that actually stated it, that believe, with the commentaries I looked at, that, that he was um, possibly the mayor of Bethlehem at the time. But we can see that he has authority because when he asks this man to sit down, he sits down. <laughs> so um, now Boaz went up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And this is the... The, the nearer relative that he mentioned that is in front of me in terms of redeeming the land. And so this guy was passing by. And so he said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And guess what he did? He sat down. He turned aside and sat down. Then he took 10 men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. Now, this is a pretty significant number, 10, because this is what was required of a Jewish synagogue to be able to open up the Torah and read. There had to be 10 men there. They could be 50 women, but there had to be at least 10 men. And so this is a, um, you know, the uh, rabbinical basis for what's called a minya, minyan, and, and it was 10, uh, Jewish law, law required that, they, that 10 men would be present or they couldn't, they couldn't conduct a service uh, at synagogue. Um, so he gets these 10 elders to come and sit down. And so guess what? They sat down as well. And verse 3, then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So this land needed to be redeemed. And I think the first week we talked about going to, to Moab, uh, it may have been that Elimelech didn't know if he would ever return. So it's likely that it was sold to somebody uh, in the tribe of Judah, because it had to be sold to someone, but it wasn't a, a final deed sale. It was, a, it was more like a lease, or they would purchase a length of time until the, the year of Jubilee. So they would agree on a price, and they would uh, write up the, the, you know, the boundaries of the land, and then they would roll it up, and then they would seal it. And then because it was a land deed, on the outside they would write, what were the conditions to redeem this back? And so um, I mentioned just a minute ago, is, you know, is Ruth a love story or is it a land story? And the answer is yes. It's about both. And God had a, a definitely a heart for both. So here Boaz calls this near kinsman over and he points out the fact in front of all these people, these witnesses, that Naomi's come back and uh, she had to sell this piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech of the tribe of, of Judah, of the area of Ephrathah in Bethlehem. 
And so verse four, so I thought to inform you saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know for there is no one but you to redeem it and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So there's this land deal that's placed out in front of this near kinsman. And he is aware of Naomi. He's aware of Elimelech. Uh, this may have been, you know, a cousin or an uncle. We don't know what the relationship was, but he was, uh, if he was a cousin, he was a first cousin. If he was an uncle, he was, you know, probably Elimelech's brother's uh, dad, or uh, Elimelech's dad's brother. And I'll say that correct at some point. Um, and so he lays this out before him and says, you know, here's this land deal. You have a chance to redeem it. He says, I will do it. And then verse five, and here Boaz lays it on real thick. Because, you know, if the, if the story went to break at this point in time, you know, if it, we were watching a TV show and they went to a commercial, we'd go, oh, man, I wanted Boaz. I wanted Boaz to give her the, the, the rose. Um, so Boaz says to her in verse five, on the day that you buy the field, you get a bonus from the hand of Naomi. You must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Now, we have already talked about Moabites and how they were uh, shunned. They were the offspring of Lot and his, um, and his daughters in, a, in drunken, uh, sinful activity. And uh, Moab was one of the sons uh, that was born uh, from that illegitimate relationship. Amnon was the other one, or Ammon. And, um, and so here, uh, he's highlighting the fact that Ruth's a Moabitess, and that's going to cause you problems. And oh, by the way, you've got to uh, raise up a name of the deceased on his inheritance. Now, this would be a problem. We talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago when we went over uh, uh, Genesis chapter 38. But this is a reminder, and, and uh, for us, when Cindy and I walked across our land, I was reminded this is not mine because these people owned it, these people owned it, these people owned it, these people owned it. They're all gone. I'll be gone long before this land is gone. Um, but according to the law of redemption, the land belongs to God. And God divvied it up to his people and he gave them certain portions and they were to keep that within the tribe. And so this land actually belonged to God, but it was, it was deeded to the tribe of Judah and it was never to be sold outside uh, to somebody else. So when, when Judah entered, when Joshua entered the land, it was parceled out to different um, different tribes, and it was, uh, it was loaned to them for their use, and the land was to stay in, a, in the assigned tribe. It couldn't be sold, and it was really more of a, uh, you know, a rental rather than a, a, a purchase. And, but you could, you could lease your rights to the land for a certain amount of time. You could even lease yourself to work that land if you got into debt. And then at the year of Jubilee, it, would all, it was supposed to all return back to the people. Now, part of the reason for the exile, the 400, uh, the 70 years in Babylon was because for 490 years, they didn't, they didn't honor this. They didn't observe it. And so God said, okay, 490 years, you owe me 
uh, you owe me 70 of these and because um, I'm going to let the land rest. You didn't, you didn't, so I'm going to. Um, so Boaz lays it out. You can buy the land. I'll, I'll buy it. And then he says, okay, by the way, you get, you get the bonus. You get uh, Ruth the Moabitess, and then you've got to raise up a child in her husband's name to inherit the land. Now, all of a sudden, verse 6, the closest relative says, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Now, uh, in counseling, um, this is something that we deal with quite often. We'll have people that come in and they say, I can't. And actually, in some cases, that's really a, a true statement. I can't do everything that God commands me to do, in parentheses, on my own. I can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything God commands me to do, I can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes when people say, I can't, it's really an issue of willingness. They're not saying, I can't. They're really saying, I won't. Uh, I remember thinking about somebody, uh, you know, um, and my wife and I've kind of joked about this, that, you know, somebody would say, you know, I, I'd, love, I, I'd love to come help you move, but I don't want to. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of what this near kinsman said. You know, his first response is, I will redeem the land. He wanted the land. That was a sweet deal for him. He just didn't know everything that went along with it. And, and so he went from I will to, oh, I can't. And so I can't was pretty much exposed by I will, that it really was I, I don't want to. And so we don't know if, if something he couldn't do uh, or, or whatever, but we do know that it's likely that um, this was not, he saw that this was not a great deal for him once he found out this other part of it. And that's, that's what we deal with in other places where we've got uh, a Leverite marriage where a brother is marrying uh, his wife's or his brother's widow and having to produce an offspring in his brother's name. And in Genesis 38, we have a younger brother who is commanded by Judah to take that role as a Leverite uh, uh, husband. And he spills his seed on the ground because he knows if that child is born, then he will get a double a double inheritance and move in front of him in the line of, of inheriting. And so he didn't want to do it. And so here we don't know what it is. We know it was going to cost him something, but he was willing to do it when it was only that, just to, you know, I had to pay it and I get the land. Uh, but when he found out that he may lose his, his inheritance, um, then it really wasn't that great of a deal. And then also one of the things that plays out is, is that child would also have a portion of his inheritance. So it would kind of eat into his children's inheritance as well. So he quickly threw up the, the white flag and says, I'm, I'm out. And so, you know, I will uh, and I can't sometimes means I won't. Um, so we get to uh, verse 7, uh, and we talked about uh, the... Um, Kind of the custom. If someone was was making a deal, and and in the Levite marriage, if if the person was turned down, he was required to surrender his sandal, and uh, and and then he got a, a funny nickname, uh, the man of the house who has no shoes or no sandals. Um, but um, 
here's a little comment in the book of Ruth. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter that a man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. Now, you know, this is something I just learned this week as I was kind of studying this is that this is just a weird thing unless you tie it into what the land was all about. When Joshua went into the land, God told him to walk on the land. And wherever your foot treads, that will be yours. And, you know, when Cindy and I bought our land, we went out and we walked on it. And we fell in love. And we just walked and walked and walked and ran into a fence. And we didn't climb it. We just stayed on our side. But, but, um, but the shoes are what we wear when we walk, usually. And so a shoe surrender, being surrendered would would be t- attached to that. I'm not. I'm not going to go walk on that land, and so that's kind of how that comes full circle. So that kind of makes sense to me. So this was the custom. Uh, we, I, I think I encourage you to go back and look in um, in uh, uh, Leviticus because it also gives instructions about you know when the when the widow comes and requests the man to perform the Leverite marriage. If he denied her, he had to give her his shoe, and then he'd spit in her face. She'd spit in his face, and uh, that doesn't happen here because Ruth is not involved, but and she's not a Jew. Um, so anyway, uh, a man removed his sandal, gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. Verse eight. So the closest relative to Boaz says, "Buy it yourself," and he removed his sandal, and. Uh, one of the teachers that I was listening to said, you know, this was a, a uh, him releasing his responsibility to Boaz, and for Boaz, that sandal became a ticket to a marriage license. <laughs> and so uh, this is where in the movie theater, if we were watching the movie, everybody cheers. <laughs> All right, verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses here today that I have bought the land uh, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Mahalon. Uh, moreover, I've acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahalon, I said it wrong the first time, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So he brought these 10 people together he proposed this transaction to a near kinsman. It was declined. The shoe was surrendered. And the, the first right of refusal was, was now in Boaz's lap. And so he makes a declaration in front of all these people as, it's, as if it's a legal final de- uh, declaration. You've seen it. He's surrendered the land to me. I'm going to buy it back from who purchased it before uh, Elimelech left to go to Moab, and I'm going to redeem the land for Naomi, and now this woman is going to be my bride. And verse 11, and all the people who were in the court with the elders said, we are witnesses. And then it was like they were cheering as well because they said, may the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Now, this word Ephrathah is a, is a kind of a unique word. That would be kind of like saying Bartlett, Memphis. So Ephrathah was like this little 
corner of Bethlehem. And I think I talked about it last week. You know, if you're in New York, people say, where are you from? Well, I'm from Tennessee. Well, we're in Tennessee. I'm from Memphis. Well, you might live in Tipton County, but you probably will say Memphis because they don't know where Tipton County is. And you don't want to keep answering these silly questions because they don't care anyway. Um, so there's this proclamation of a blessing. It's not just, okay, we, we see, we, we agree, this happened. Uh, may the Lord make the woman who's coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. What an incredible thought. These are the matriarchs of, of all of Israel. The women who gave birth to all the tribes that we now name in our, in our country. And then verse 12, which is a twist. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give to you by this young woman. Now we took a lot of time, week two, talking about Judah and Tamar. And, you know, it's a terrible story, Genesis 38, about uh, two sons that, that die and one that's a lot younger and Judah sends his daughter-in-law away and then later um, uh, um, propositions her and has sex with her. They conceive, conceive a child. Uh, he goes back to, to have her burned at the stake because of what he's found out that she's pregnant until he finds out that she had some trinkets that belonged to him, a staff, a belt, and a ring, signet ring. And she just sends them out and says, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. And his declaration is, she's more righteous than I. Well, the children that were born to Tamar, uh, twins, and one of them is named Perez. And this is, so technically, even though Judah uh, never had relations with her again, Genesis 28 is very clear about that. Um, the act of what a Leverite marriage is to accomplish is to provide an offspring to inherit the land, and Perez does that. And, um, and you know, it's, it's a, a, a chapter of the Bible that is kind of, you know, people get to G, uh, Joseph and they kind of get excited because it's kind of a neat story uh, of betrayal and, and triumph. But um, Genesis 38 is kind of like, how do I talk with my children about this? How do I explain this? What is this? Um, but here they are giving this great celebration, a blessing, let your home be like, uh, the one who's coming to your home be like Rachel and Leah, and then turns around and says this. And now we're going to spend a little bit of time going back into Genesis 38 next week because we're going to find uh, several cookies in there that we skipped over last time. But um, I believe that this is one of these little hints from God I have some treasure buried back there. Go back and check it out. So we'll go back and, and dig for some treasure next week. But again, uh, Judah um, uh, had this son, uh, illegitimate son, and he was uh, uh, a, a forerunner to Boaz. Uh, Boaz uh, was the clan of Perez. And so... If there was no Perez, there would be no Boaz. If there was no Boaz, there would be no Leverite marriage. There would be no Ruth. There would be no Obed. There would be no Jesse. There would be no David. And again, I don't believe the coincidence is, uh, is 
a, a kosher word, <laughs> and I'm not even Jewish. All right. So verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Now, we don't know how old um, Boaz was. We know youth, Ruth was younger because Boaz highlights that fact. You didn't go after the young guys. You hung around for this old guy. And, um, you know, we know that Abraham was given a promise by God that at 75 that he would have a child, and that baby didn't come till he was 100. I heard that Robert De Niro fathered a child at 79. Um, I think uh, Tony Randall fathered a child at 77. Um, I think I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> um, but she became his wife and gave birth to a son. Now, I want, I want you to see something I think is just really cool. Chapter by chapter, we have this, this story about this woman who's an outcast. She's an outsider. She's really kind of rejected. She'd be like, um, I don't know, if you were a, a big Memphis fan and you had somebody sitting next to you that was a Tennessee fan at, at a ball game and they're cheering for Tennessee. Um, it was a whole lot worse than that. Uh, the Moabites were were basically shunned by by the Jews and didn't they didn't want anything to do with them. Uh, but here, uh, in chapter one, Naomi is. Uh, let me find where it is. Okay, the Moabite yes, and and you remember Ammonites and Moabites were not allowed to enter the congregation of the Lord at all, and. Um, so this was going to be a mixed marriage, which uh, obviously would carry a stigma that, you know, would not be very well received. And they would carry this their whole life together. And probably their little baby guy, Obed, would carry that as well, have to, you know, ward off uh, sarcasm and, and things like that. But this is a picture of God's grace accomplishing what the law couldn't accomplish. And that's why grace is such a wonderful thing. Um, I want to go back. I want to find, where is this? You know, I'm actually, here we go. This is what I want. You know, when Ruth came in, uh, is introduced to uh, Bethlehem, uh, the word that's used of her is uh, nakraya, which means a foreigner. In chapter 2, She's a shippa, which is below the lowest servant. So she was the scum on the belly of an ant. Uh, in chapter 3, she's uh, ama. She said, when Boaz says, who, who are you in the dark? You, you made my feet cold. Who are you? And she said, well, I'm, I'm Ruth, your maidservant, which is a step up. And in chapter 4, she's a bride. So we see this movement of God in her life, moving her from foreigner to outcast to just barely recognized, you know, a widow who's scraping to get by uh, beneath the lowest servant to where Boaz moves her up to be with the gleaners. And then in chapter three, she's a maidservant. And finally, in chapter four, she's a wife. Um, I, um, I want to touch on a couple things about the land here. You know, um, in Jeremiah chapter 25, and this is one that I would want you to write down and, and go back and look at. Jeremiah 25, 6 to 14. 
this has to do with redemption of land. I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, but I want to touch on a little bit more because it specifically talks about um, this idea of, of what the law required to redeem the land. And that's a word that we've all talked about. We've, we've been redeemed. And we've been, what that means is there was a purchase a transaction that took place that, that brought us back to a right foreigner. You know, we, we all belong to the Lord. But we strayed away, we've wandered away, we've rebelled against Him, and something had to take place for us to be back in relationship with Him. We had to be redeemed. And, and the law required a procedure that uh, your next of kin had, to f had the opportunity, but then they had to follow certain directions to redeem that land. And so a scroll was written or a codex, a, uh, some kind of a, a book or something that was recorded, and they would write the perimeters of the land, the markers, and then... And this is where we get into, um, I don't want to get too far off, but uh, the ancient boundaries, you know, do not, do not move the ancient boundaries. Just a little fun thing here. Anytime boundaries are mentioned in the Bible, it's always about geographical boundaries, not personal boundaries. Uh, but anyway, moving right along. Um, they would, on the outside of the scroll, they would write kind of the conditions for redeeming this land, how much it was going to cost, what they needed to pay, some kind of procedure where they had to execute uh, either legally or, you know, in, in the community, and they could purchase back those unused years before the year of Jubilee and redeem the land that way. And in Jeremiah 25, uh, verses 6 through 14, God instructs Jeremiah to buy some land. He's in prison. It's not a pretty sight. He's already prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar's coming. They're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And I know I've mentioned all this part, but I just want to review it and tie it in. Um, and one of his nephews comes to him to sell the land. And so he knows it's of God, so he buys it. They write what the land uh, uh, parameters are, roll it up in a scroll, and they put a seal on it. And they put it in an earthen vessel and they bury it. And the instructions are given on the outside of the scroll and they're given to Jeremiah's offspring. You see, at this time, he's pretty old. And he's going to go into Babylon and he knows he's likely not to come back. If we got 70 years, that's kind of like me. You know, my, my dad called me on my 45th birthday and said, Happy birthday, son, you're halfway to 90. <laughs> and, and now I'm 62, so where am I? <laughs> so, so all of this would take place, and really this was really a dumb investment for Jeremiah, except that he was being obedient to the Lord. But it was a promise of hope for the captives that were going to go out because they would come back. Some of them would come back, and he would have relatives that could purchase this land back. So it was really a kind of not so much about the land at that point in time, but just a, a buried promise that the land would, would be recovered, that God would send them back, and certainly he did through, through his servant Cyrus. So, and then we get to down here at the bottom, Revelation 5. Now I've had, I've mentioned this a couple times, and I think one week I asked you to read it as a, um, as a assignment. And I think understanding this background understanding it from Jeremiah, understanding it from Ruth, as we read Revelation 5, all of a sudden it, it shows a little bit different. So I want to do that, and then I've just got a couple comments, and then we'll finish the chapter 
next week. So if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 5. And you can go out and tell people, you know, we studied Revelation 5 tonight, and they'll say, well, I thought you said you were going to a study of Ruth. Okay, and I'm going to get a little dramatic here, because this is dramatic. And I hear still, still hear pages turning, so I'll wait. Okay, here we go. And this is John. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back. And there it is, inside the, the parameters of the land and on the back, the instructions of what needed to be done to redeem this land. And it was sealed up with seven seals. And that was not really an uncommon thing, but it was done usually at, a, at the level of royalty. The Vestasian and Augustus both had their wills uh, rolled up in a scroll and sealed with seven seals. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, and the reason is, is it had to be a kinsman. It had to be a near kinsman to, to Adam. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that has come from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if, in, if slain. And I could just picture... John turning, you know, with his eyes, wiping the tears out of his eyes, looking for a lion, but seeing a lamb. Uh, a lamb uh, from standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's saints. And I think about things that are eternal. We've already talked about conversations that we have with one another about the Lord, about His, His redemptive plan, about His Word. Well, here's another thing that's eternal, a bowl filled with all of our prayers. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and, tr and tongue and people and nation. For you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And, you know, um, there's only three categories where king and priest are connected together. The first one is Melchizedek. And, we, you know, he pops up in Genesis with Abraham. They exchange things. Abraham offers him a, um, a tithe of this great battle that he's won. And uh, some people believe that he was a pre-incarnate uh, Jesus. I don't know that that's true. I think it certainly he was a type because uh, Psalm 110 and then we get to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews reveals a little bit more about Melchizedek. And it doesn't say that Jesus was him, but it says that he was, Jesus was out of the order of Melchizedek. He had no beginning, he had no ending. And this uh, 
so Melchizedek was a king. That's actually what, uh, he was the king of Salem, and, uh, and he was a priest. And then uh, Jesus is a king, and he's a priest. And then guess what? You're drafted. Because Peter tells us that we, God redeemed us to be a, 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 a we're, we're his people and we're kings and priests for, for him. So uh, you've made them to be a kingdom of, and priests to our God, and they will re reign upon the earth. So Revelation 5, we get a little bit more insight about what this is all about. What's, what's taking place? What does this book have to do with anything? Well, I believe it's a title deed to the earth. That was lost in Adam. You remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan said, if you will come bow down to me and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms that you can see right now. And the interesting thing I find out about that is, is that, um, you know, if I offered to sell you the, you know, um, the pyramid or, or, or um, FedEx Forum, you probably would chuckle and smile. If I gave you a really good price, you might laugh a little bit harder because it's worth a whole lot more than $150 and it's, I don't have a title deed for it. But the thing that I think is interesting about this is that Jesus doesn't challenge Jesus, or he doesn't challenge Satan on his authority to claim all these kingdoms. So we walk on enemy territory all the time uh, this world's not our home. It's a reminder uh, all the time because of the frustrations and disappointments and, oh, by the way, aches and pains that we feel. And uh, and just in the last week, we celebrated at our house and then we didn't have any water flow. And then we celebrated because we had water flow and then we didn't have hot water the next day. And then we celebrated again and, and it's just going to be that way from now until we move into a, a new a new kingdom with, with our permanent uh, king and priest. But in the meantime, that's our role. That's our service. We're, we're crowned to serve God as a priest. And to, the priest intercedes for the people, and the priest uh, intercedes for the people to God, and he intercedes to, for God to the people. And we need to be messengers about, about uh, his great redemptive love for us and for others and for them. Um, Revelation 5 is uh, something that uh, a lot of people get confused in. Brother Steve preached about it a couple years ago. Dr. Rogers did at the turn of the century. Um, and I know people who've gone through both of those series with the pastors and still were kind of confused. Hopefully this is a little piece that unlocks this chapter, um, that there was a, a scroll, a book that no one was worthy to open except for this lion that it was a lamb standing as if slain. All right. So next week, what I want you to do is I want you to read the whole book of Ruth once more, one more time. And by the time you're done here, you probably will have read it maybe five to eight times. And uh, it's an easy read. But then I want you to see if you can walk through it with somebody. Walk through all four chapters with somebody. Uh, maybe somebody who, who looks up to you as a disciple maker, maybe somebody who's just a friend. Hey, this, can I share with you what I've been learning? And I wouldn't expect you to remember everything, but if you're like me, you can choose, use your cheat sheet notes <laughs> and, uh, and just walk that through them. And, and 
a big part of why I wanted to do this book is because uh, it's so little and there's so much. And uh, I think that there's more than I'm even sharing with you. I just haven't even discovered myself just yet. So um, I want to um, I want to close in prayer. So everybody, let's stand and we'll close in prayer. And then if you have a question, I'll hang around for just a minute and we'll try to answer that. And is it, I don't know if it's rain. It's, it's 73, so you're probably going to still have to use your air conditioner on the way home. All right. Well, Father, once again, we thank you for uh, the fact that you're a holy God, and yet you invite us as broken, unholy creatures to come into your presence and to learn from you and to get up close and, and touch the hem of your robe and to be cleansed. And so we thank you. We thank you for the possibility of a relationship because of the lamb who was slain. We thank you for um, the time that we get to enjoy together just for a few minutes to open up your word, look at it, and, and ask, Lord, will you show us something deep, something about you, something that is uh, exciting that would cause us to love you more and to, to praise you better and to worship you more consistently and to have you be the greatest priority of our life in, in all things, that we wouldn't separate out uh, the secular from the sacred, but that we would just make everything sacred by being connected to you. So we ask you to fill us with your spirit and lead us out as, as uh, anointed members of your kingly priesthood to minister to others in your name and to pray in their behalf to you. And then, Lord, to share the message that you have for them. And thank you again for including us in your great redemptive plan because it is incredible. It's beautiful. It's marvelous. I can't even use enough words to describe it, but you're such a good God to include us, and I thank you for that. And thank you again for tonight, and thank you for including this incredible love story, land story, in your word that we could learn from it and learn about you. Lord, we pray these things knowing that um, we can go to bed, lay our head on the pillow tonight and have a great attitude and tomorrow wake up to tragedy or disappointment or frustration or just get up on the wrong side of the bed. Lord, I do it. So I know I'm, I'm not talking about anybody else, but I'm guilty of it. Will you help us tonight uh, go to bed and uh, with praise on our lips and wake up tomorrow with praise on our lips. Lord, we love you and we lift it in Jesus' name. Amen.